Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't, because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance. Exchanges are affiliate. Products not available in every state. The Leslie Marshall Show. The only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Happy Tuesday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Great show in store. Great guest coming up a little bit later. Mimi Roca will be in the house. But as we like to start it off each and every program, and most of the programs, we don't do it every single one, uh, let's check what's ripped. The impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump kicked off in the Senate today. That began with debate over the constitutionality of the House prosecuting a president who has already left office. Now, the lead impeachment manager, Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, he cited examples from history of constitutional framers discussing the standard of impeachment and how it was inconceivable that it could cease to apply during a president's last days in office. He said, quote, President Trump may not know a lot about the framers, but they knew a lot about him. He also declared pointing to their focus on presidential corruption aimed at elections, quote, and additionally, quote, as a matter of history and original understanding, there is no merit to President Trump's claim that he can incite an insurrection and then insist weeks later that the Senate lacks power to even hear evidence at a trial to even hold a trial. The true rule was stated by former President John Quincy Adams when he categorically declared, quote, I hold myself. So long as I have the breath of life in my body, amenable to impeachment by the House for everything I did during the time I held any public office. Uh, Donald Trump, by the way, was impeached when he was still president. This is just the trial which the Republican Senate Majority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, said to wait until after um, the uh, couple of weeks and uh, so that Joe Biden would have time uh, to start things and he could be inaugurated. And he even at the time, if you remember, um, implied that he was happy or said he was happy about the uh, impeachment going forward in the House and didn't know how he was going to, to decide in the Senate. And I think we all know he was lying. He knew and he pushed it, right? We could have had the Senate trial before Donald J. Trump left office and left the presidency before January 20th. Republican Mitch McConnell was up to his political dirty tricks, knowing that senators, Republican senators, could and would cry a lack of constitutionality because Donald Trump would be a private citizen and no longer a sitting president. So we we know what this is about. The politics and the circus aren't on the Democratic side here. It's on the Republican side. Let's rip another. And here is some audio of the House impeachment manager, Jamie Raskin, in his opening impeachment trial statement earlier today. President Trump has sent his lawyers here today to try to stop the Senate from hearing 
the facts of this case. They want to call the trial over before any evidence is even introduced. Their argument is that if you commit an impeachable offense in your last few weeks in office, you do it with constitutional impunity. You get away with it. In other words, conduct that would be a high crime and misdemeanor in your first year as president, and your second year as president, and your third year as president, and for the vast majority of your fourth year as president, you can suddenly do in your last few weeks in office without facing any constitutional accountability at all. This would create a brand new January exception to the Constitution of the United States of America. By the way, I wrote a piece um, about why well, there were five reasons I felt that the impeachment trial not only should go forward, but must go forward. Interestingly enough, the framers of the Constitution actually wrote about impeachment and removing a president before they wrote about the actual constitutional terms of being president and the executive branch. That's how important this issue was to them, that they, uh, they, they, they discussed this uh, first, wrote about this first, what we are living and experiencing today. It was almost like they wrote it specifically for today. Uh, let's rip another. Here's a very brief audio of Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, referring to Trump's failed coup attempt as deserving of a mulligan. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's entitled to a mulligan once in a while. What? Really? Really? That's funny. Um, if, by the way, for some of you, a mulligan, for some of you, uh, uh, people are like, a mulla what? A mulla who? For some of you, a mulligan is a stew made from odds and ends of food. Uh, but what I think he was referring to, because the former president loved to golf every weekend and, oh, give Joe Biden a hard time for going home to see his family. <laughs> oh, he took Air Force One. He's the president. He's supposed to. Uh, anyway, a mulligan is an informal uh, golf term, an extra stroke allowed after a poor shot that's not counted on the scorecard. Donald Trump didn't take an extra stroke. This wasn't just a poor shot, uh, citing insurrection uh, and encouraging insurrection overthrow of uh, a, a government and a free and fair and legal election is uh, not something that shouldn't be counted on the scoreboard because it will be counted on the scoreboard of my mind, your minds, especially after watching that video again today at the impeachment trial earlier. I mean, for those of us, myself included, who watched um, the original January 6th insurrectionist storming the Capitol, but to watch that video today, it was even worse than I remembered. Let's rip another. Oh, by the way, and it will not be erased from the scorecard of history either. Well, it is common that many politicians grow more popular once they leave office. That's not been the case for former President Donald Trump. On the eve of his impeachment trial in the front of the Senate, new polling reveals that the Americans want him convicted more than at any other point during his impeachment 
uh, trial a year ago and more than earlier polls have sh shown. More amazingly, more want Trump barred from holding national office ever again than had even an unfavorable rating of any president after one term in office. There's a new ABC Ipsos poll that was released over the weekend showing that 56 percent of Americans are in favor of the Senate convicting Trump and barring him from holding federal office in the future. Just 43% are opposed to such action, um, mostly Republicans. Uh, this is merely the latest poll to find a clear plurality for such a measure, even after Trump left office. There was a Monmouth uh, University poll taken at the end of January that indicated 57% wanted him barred from holding federal office and 52% wanted him convicted by the Senate. Every single poll over the last month that you look at uh, and that meets uh, the standards by CNN, for example, for, for reporting, has shown that at least 56% of Americans want him to be barred from holding or seeking, uh, depending on the uh, question. Sometimes they say holding, sometimes they say seeking, uh, and not just the presidency, but federal office again. Um, you know, because remember, he could certainly, you know, be a vice president of somebody's ticket or be a senator or, you know, be a um uh, a, a, a congressman, a House member. But yeah, you know, it, it, it doesn't, when it says federal office, that doesn't rule out being governor of a state. That is to put mildly a stunning percentage, by the way. No point last year in the polling between Trump and now President Joe Biden did you see any number close to 56% in a national average. So that means there are likely millions of Americans, if you break it down, who voted for Donald Trump last year, but now want him barred from ever holding federal office again. Indeed, about 80% of Republicans, depending on the polling, don't want Trump being kept from running for or holding office, federal office. But there is still an indication there is a clear drop in support uh, across the board, and especially among Republicans from last year for Donald Trump. Remember, he won more than 90% of self-identified Republicans in last fall's election. Um, and uh, 80% of Republicans don't want him running. Uh, overall, this type of opposition to a sitting or former president after one term is historic. No other president after one term in polling history ever has had an unfavorable rating or disapproval rating north of 50%. And on the much harsher being barred from office question, well, Trump's above that milestone just with that question. It comes to conviction. When you look at conviction specifically, there seems to be a slightly smaller majority in favor of such an action. There's an average of 51% of Americans in live interview polls taken since January 20th that are in favor. A minority of 43% oppose this. And the eight-point difference, well, that's basically stayed the same since last month. The Senate did acquit Trump after his first impeachment trial in 2020. Uh, my bet they probably will again today or after this uh, week or days of impeachment uh, trial uh, hearing in the Senate. Uh, the gap between supporting and opposing impeachment was four points. It never got as high as the eight points as it is right now. Historically, no other president except for Richard Nixon has ever had a majority of Americans say he should be impeached by, impeached by the House, convicted by the Senate. Only weeks before Nixon resigned, a clear majority did believe he should be impeached and removed from office. Trump is not likely to be convicted or barred from running for federal office because of supports from Republicans. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines, part one. We'll be back with ripped part two right after this quick break. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets.
We are back on the Leslie Marshall part two of what ripped from the headlines Tuesday. An analysis by the nonpartisan CBO Congressional Budget Office released yesterday found that the $15 federal minimum wage bill proposed by Democrats would cut jobs for 1.4 million workers by 2025, but it would lift 900,000 people out of poverty. Now, some people might say, well, how does that work? President Biden, by this matters, included a proposal to increase the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour in his $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief plan. But it's facing resistance from not just Republicans, but moderate Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia. He said over the weekend, uh, the president, that he does not expect the provision to survive negotiations, but that he's going to push for it in a separate bill. He said, quote, no one should work 40 hours a week and live below the poverty wage. And if you're making less than $15 an hour, you're living below the poverty wage. Now, this CBO report found that a $15 minimum wage phase in by June 2025, as proposed by Democrats, would have the following effects. It would increase the cumulative budget deficit over the 2021 to 2031 period by $54 billion. It would drive prices higher for goods and services, stemming from the higher wage of workers paid at or near the minimum wage. Increase wages for 17 million workers who currently make under $15 an hour, as well as 10 million workers whose wages would otherwise be slightly above that wage rate. The cumulative pay of affected people would increase on net by $333 billion, and that net increase would come from higher pay, $509 billion for people who were employed at higher hourly wages under the bill, offset by lower pay, $175 billion, because of reduced employment under the bill. That's what the report adds. So what are they saying? The Senate Budget Committee chair is Bernie Sanders, and this is his response that he wrote yesterday. Quote, I find it hard to understand how the CBO concluded that raising the minimum wage would increase the deficit by $54 billion Two years ago, the CBO concluded that $15 minimum wage would increase the deficit by less than a million over 10 years. So they're $53 billion higher. Um, and the good news, quote, however, is that from a bird rule perspective, the CBO has demonstrated that increasing the minimum wage would have a direct and substantial impact on the federal budget, he added. He says what that means is that we can clearly raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour under the rules of reconciliation. And it would seem this is how we're going to have to govern without any bipartisan, uh, you know, attitude uh, by the Republicans across the aisle. Let's rip another. And Joe Manchin, battles between Democrat and Republican. The Office of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger confirmed to CNN yesterday that it has started an investigation into former President Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the state's election results. That includes a phone call from the former president made to Raffensperger himself. Now, during the call, Trump pushed Raffensperger to find votes to overturn the election results after his loss to then-president-elect Joe Biden. Now, that's according not just to Raffensperger's a recollection, but to actual uh, audio or an audio recording first released by the Washington Post, later obtained by CNN. This is what Donald Trump said in that audio recording. Quote, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. Just want to point out, even if Donald Trump had found 11,780 votes and won Georgia, he still would not be president. Georgia was only 16 electoral votes, and he was far more less uh, uh, behind Joe Biden in electoral vote count, uh, which is why some of this became insane and, and deranged, if you will, 
because, you know, if you if you're going to are you really going to overturn Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, um, which you would need to do all three. And then I think Wisconsin as well, in order for him to have reached the, the you know, the magic number. Right. You know, he, he he would need a few states, not just Georgia. But for some reason, that became his mountain to die on and die on. He might at least uh, in court. Raffensperger was adamant in defending the results of the presidential election, as well as the integrity of the state's voting system uh, during that uh, that call, which was an hour long and quite stunning. Uh, Trump lambasted his fellow Republicans for refusing to say that he won the election in Georgia, which is false, and repeatedly touted baseless claims of election fraud. Now, there have been no credible allegations of any issues with voting that would have impacted the election. That's been affirmed by dozens of judges, governors, election officials, the Electoral College, the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and even the United States Supreme Court. Walter Jones, a spokesperson for Raffensperger, told CNN in a written statement that, quote, the Secretary of State's office investigates complaints it receives. The investigations are fact-finding and administrative in nature. Any further legal efforts will be left to the Attorney General. Uh, The first to report on this investigation was Reuters. They broke that. The announcement of the investigation comes as arguments are set to come underway today in Trump's historic second impeachment trial where he's facing a single charge of inciting an insurrection after a mob of supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which many call insurrectionist, other call rioters, other call terrorists, domestic terrorists. Um, five people died, including U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. It's actually six. Two officers took their lives. Uh, it was an attempt by thousands of Trump supporters to interfere with Congress, counting the electoral votes, confirming the win of the presidency to Joe Biden, uh, a zenith uh, of months of Trump promoting conspiracy theories and lies that was uh, the election was stolen from him, which was uh, truly false. The House impeachment managers are planning to use the call with Raffensperger and the months-long campaign to overturn Biden's win as part of their case starting today. A Georgia prosecutor's office is taking the extraordinary January 2nd phone call between Trump and Raffensperger seriously as far as a potential case. So it weighs whether to pursue criminal charges of election fraud against the former president. Um, you know, that's possible. The newly elected Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, is expected to make some type of announcement on the matter one way or another um, within this month. Uh, it was previously reported by CNN that Willis said in a statement, she will enforce the law without fear and that her office was evaluating whether to pursue potential criminal action against Trump. By the way, everybody should enforce the law without fear. That was another excuse about the impeachment trial, right? That it'll upset people or further divide the nation. You know, that's sort of like, well, Leslie killed somebody and, you know, she had the gun in her hand and blood was dripping down her hand. Um, But, you know, it might upset some people. And um, let's just not have a trial because even though we know she's guilty, the jury's going to acquit her. You know, really, that's what they're pretty much saying with this. Uh, By the way, Willis also said once the investigation is complete, this matter, like all matters, will be handled by our office based on the facts and the law. David Worley, the only Democrat on Georgia's five-member state election board, uh, said in a statement, quote, I requested that the Secretary of State open an investigation. Now that that has been done, I will wait to get the report before requesting further action. Let's rip another. It will take an all-out national effort to dismantle the radicalization pipeline that has planted conspiracy theories in the heads of millions of Americans and inspired last month's attack on the Capitol, according to experts who spoke with Axios. There are two key measures that can make a difference, though. Keeping extremists out of the institutions where they could get, do the greatest damage. Military, police departments, legislatures. Hello. Marjorie Taylor Greene, we're talking to you. Uh, providing help for those who have embraced dangerous ideologies. 
And uh, online platforms, meanwhile, must be unwavering in their commitment to root out conspiracy theories and lies that undermine faith in democracy. That's according to the experts interviewed by Axios. Radicalization and counterterrorism experts broadly applaud tech companies' efforts now underway to remove this material and the accounts that spread it on their platforms, despite heavy blowback from conservatives. Remember, Twitter made the decision to ban Donald Trump, uh, seen as its own major asset in the fight to slow or reverse radicalization. Um, You know, extremist uh, experts are worried that this extremism will make us see another January 6th in the future. God willing, that won't be the case. I'm Leslie Marshall. Quick break. Our great guest right after this talk. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. I'm Leslie Marshall. Not enough coffee today. Glad to have you with us. And thank you for listening to us on radio, on stream, and watching us on YouTube Live, Facebook Live, Twitter's Periscope Live. Uh, Good uh, to have you, all of us uh, there uh, watching us or listening to us. You know, today we have a great guest joining us. Mimi Roca is district attorney of Westchester County, just north of uh, the Big Apple, New York City. And since taking office on January 1st of this year, she has focused on rebuilding trust between law enforcement and the community and shaping a safer and fairer criminal justice system for all of the county's 950,000 residents. A federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York for 17 years, including five years is chief of the Westchester Division for the U.S. Department of Justice. Mimi is also a legal commentator for national media. Her DA uh, Twitter handle is at Westchester DA. Personal Twitter, at Mimi Roca one uh, uh, District Attorney Roca, thank you for joining us. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I became a big fan of yours through Twitter and your tweets, actually, uh, you know, uh, b- before actually you were elected to your current position. And congratulations on that. Hello? Oh, there. Can you hear me now? I can hear yeah, I can hear you now. Can you hear me? <laughs> I Sorry, was saying I, I was really a, I was saying I was a fan of yours on Twitter. I would yeah, often so I, I I heard you. Thank you so much. Sorry, I just had you on mute because we oh. were figuring things out behind the scenes here. So but it's oh, great no. to be with you. Thanks so much. Uh, uh, no worries. And thank you for joining us. I know you're uh, you're very, very busy. I can see you're actually working at work, unlike me, it was at my home studio. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I was just talking during a, a segment we call Ripped from the Headlines, where we go over some news. Today is the uh, second impeachment trial in the Senate of Donald Trump. And, you know, this all goes uh, around, you know, wh- what people, you know, perceive to be his responsibility um, in inciting the violence, the insurrection, et cetera, that occurred on January 6th. But what has come out, and it was before then, and you know uh, better than I, uh, that before January 6th, extremism was a problem in our country. The FBI would constantly put out reports that weren't making the front page and were buried, you know, on page four or five, that, you know, uh, extreme radical right-wing extremist. Um, often, you know, white males, uh, you know, individuals who are, you know, either racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, much bigger problem than radical Islamist. And um, obviously, any kind of extremism that seems to be rooted in hate. And one of the things that you have and you're tasked with, in a sense, in your position um, is to 
fight hate, nip it in the bud before it escalates to that, you know, place of words turn into actions that are violent, uh, words turn into criminal action and extremist action like we saw on January 6th. Can, um, can you speak to some of that? Because that, that's a really difficult task, especially where our nation is right now after the past four years. Sure. So it, it is a challenge for sure. Um, but one that, you know, I embrace and have already seen a lot of um, improvement in the sense that I think we're, we're really even more focused on it than we were before at this level. And when I say we, I mean the DA's office, but also local law enforcement. Um, so, you know, obviously when people think about combating violent extremism, um, dealing with domestic terrorism, even though we don't have a federal domestic terrorism statute, they think of national uh, law enforcement agencies like Homeland Security, FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office where I used to work. And, and they should, because that is obviously where when you have major um, incidents like the insurrection at the Capitol, um, prior examples would be like Oklahoma City bombing, things like that. Um, where you, you would have federal agencies respond. But obviously the goal is to um, try to get, to, to prevent those as much as possible. We're not gonna be able to prevent everything. And you know, just recently Homeland Security, um, not too long ago, FBI put out um, you know, warnings about uh, domestic extremism being one of the greatest threats that we do face in terms of national security in our country. Um, so it needs to be a top priority for all of law enforcement. At the local level, we tend to see things on a much more, you know, granular, community-based level, right? We see the Zoom bombings that occur um, that I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners have, have um, encountered um, that can be racist, it can be anti-Semitic, uh, homophobic, and we see swastikas painted, even at schools, you know, or on places where um, people people go in their communities. We've seen here in Westchester um, a sort of rash, if you will, of stickers put up by a particular group, the Patriot Front. Um, and and I, I say that publicly because it's, it's been reported publicly. Um, things like that. And so the idea is, well, when you, when you start seeing, if you just let those kind of go because they don't necessarily rise to the level of a crime in and of themselves, then you're missing an opportunity, I think, to one, collect information and intelligence, and two, to see the patterns across a broader area that could be pointing towards something more serious. Um, so that's, especially in a place like Westchester, where we have 42 different police departments, I think that's where this kind of unifying collection of information and uh, sharing and gathering um, within our county and then across the state and even to the federal level um, is really, really important. And then doing community outreach, doing public statements with local law enforcement. So that's something um, that we've, we've really focused on to do public statements with local law enforcement condemning this kind of um, conduct and, and letting people know that, you know, we're really watching and we meaning again, lo local law enforcement. I think that's important for the community here and it's important for people in law enforcement to hear. 
You know, one of the things that had caught my eye uh, a while back uh, when you tweeted that your uh, parents had escaped the Holocaust, and the reason for that is I have relatives that escaped, I have relatives that didn't and that perished. Uh, my father is Jewish, so I'm uh, I'm a Jew in uh, reform circles, <laughs> not conservative and orthodox, but I am of Jewish lineage, and um, I'm always uh, I'm very fascinated uh, by uh, Holocaust studies, you know, World War II, etc. You wrote an incredible piece, which was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, uh, an opinion piece for USA Today. And there's so much that you say in it, and I don't want to read the whole thing because I I want you to speak and I want people to read it. Um, but you talk about and you've mentioned before your parents narrowly escaping the Holocaust. And um, you, you talk about why you feel compelled to share their story. Um, and, and you say, but because the Holocaust must stand as a reminder of the violence that can come from hate, disinformation, and dehumanizing people. And then you go on to say the insurrection of the US Capitol on January 6th with a stark warning that we need to fight this hatred and bigotry now before it escalates into a cancer we can't contain. You've heard these stories your whole life, as have I, not from my parents, from other relatives, more so my grandparents. But, um, you know, some people get angry when they hear an individual, whether it's you or me or somebody else, make any comparisons to what happened at the time uh, during World War II and the Holocaust to today. Now, uh, uh, certainly uh, there was nobody calling for the murder of, you know, over 11 million people, 6 million of which uh, were Jews on January 6th. But there are similarities. There is a correlation between hatred and and that speech and what it can become if put into action, because that's exactly how the Holocaust started. Um, you know, just, you know, years and years of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic rhetoric, um, and, uh, uh, and quite frankly, obviously a lot of falsehoods and propaganda that was, you know, fed to the people and some of which were brainwashed with that hate. No, absolutely. I mean, disinformation, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, but it, it really is fake propaganda was a huge part of the cause, the the uh, how we ended up with the horrifying you know Holocaust. Um, I don't think it's just so much a matter about making comparisons as much as learning lessons from the past, and and to do that you have to look at what happened in other places and recognize though that I, and this is a recognition that sadly, I think more and more people have come to here that we're not immune from that. You know, what we think of as isolated incidents, what we think of as, you know, political spin, what we think of as, um, you know, targeting groups for, for various, you know, sort of maybe non somewhat inconsequential reasons, right? Like it's not with, as you say, the determination of, okay, we want to exterminate an entire race, but, but all of those things start to add up and build. And we have to, we have to be, I think, honest with ourselves uh, as a country about, you know, where we are and, and what, what's possible here to prevent it. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with Mimi Roca, District Attorney of Westchester County. Uh, please uh, follow her on Twitter. Um, her DA Twitter handle is at Westchester DA. And personal, at Mimi Roca1, M-I-M-I-R-O-C-A-H, the number one. We'll be back. Also, check out her USA Today opinion piece. I'm going to be posting that on all of my social media. Uh, take a read. We'll do that during the break or after this interview. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back with her and with you right after this. Don't go away. We are back. 
I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is Mimi Roca, District Attorney of Westchester County, and she just took office January 1st, 2021. Once again, her Twitter handle for the DA's office is at Westchester DA. Her personal Twitter handle is at Mimi Roca One. We're talking about uh, a great piece that she wrote for USA Today. Uh, thank you, DA Roca, uh, for holding and welcome back. Um, you say in your piece, according to the FBI, hate crimes in 2019 were at their highest level in a decade and that the data suggests a likely upward trend uh, in 2020 last year as well. One, how, how did we get here? And two, what can we do to reverse course going forward in your professional opinion? Well, I think how we got here is a lot of what we've been talking about, that in part, you know, what I'll call bias incidents often go unresponded to. Um, and that that's not because people don't care, but because, they're, you know, there's the First Amendment, obviously, and there's a fine line between free speech and something that is, um, you know, turn, can, can cause hate, can cause harm, even if it doesn't rise to the level of a crime. And so if those are going unaddressed, you know, it's it's a little bit of a sort of a theory um, of law enforcement that that existed for a while um, where, you know, you address the smaller problems and it first in a community and then it helps prevent the larger crimes because people feel, you know, more they take more pride in their community. They feel more comfortable. There's there's more people, you know, enjoying the outdoors, less crime. There, there's that sort of there, that is a theory of law enforcement prevention, and I and I think that's similar here. So we we have to pay attention as at law enforcement and, and as a society. I mean, this isn't all on law enforcement. This has to be a joint effort. It also has to be here in Westchester. We have a wonderful human rights commission that does a lot of work. There are wonderful private, um, organ nonprofit organizations like the Anti Defamation League. Um, there are so many partners that I've spoken with actually over the past few weeks who, you know, do outreach and education um, at schools and to groups. But again, I think you can do that everywhere, which isn't really practical or realistic, or you can do it in areas where we see the need. And so part of that is collecting the information and and recognizing the patterns that we're starting to see. You know, is it race based? hate that we're seeing here? Is it religious-based hate that we're seeing here? What kind of groups? How often? Is it escalating? Are these smaller incidents test incidents? And and then obviously, where you do have things that rise to the level of actual criminal conduct, you need to pursue those cases, um, you know, with, with aggressively. Um, so I, I think it's sort of a combination of a lot of different things that got us here and that can help get us get things better. You know, some of it is, a lot of it is leadership and, and rhetoric. Um, and I mean that at all levels of government, making it clear again from law enforcement that we, we don't tolerate this, that we are, that we are looking at this, that we take it seriously. You talk in your piece about getting creative to fight hate crimes. Um, you know, two questions. Uh, one, I was cringing, um, when I was watching on January 6th, Numerous people that had just been broken into the Capitol, um, you know, numerous people that were holding up signs or helped to assemble a, a, a noose gallows, if you will, right outside of our of our Capitol. Were you surprised as, as a, a DA 
how, how many people were walking freely out the door, making that job much more difficult for federal law enforce, enforcement, the FBI, to now track these people down? They're still tracking these people down. They're still posting pictures of these individuals every day. I, I was just wondering from your perspective, because I'm not an attorney, I'm not a DA, um, how that looked to you. Yeah, look, it was shocking. And, and I talked to friends in various positions of, you know, law enforcement, former law enforcement um, around the country who really, we couldn't believe what we were seeing. And you don't really need to be in law enforcement, as you say, yeah. to, to have that reaction because it was shocking. And then people just walked away. Um, what I said, I think two days or the day after um, that, that attack is we really need, I mean, first and foremost, we need to you know, arrest and prosecute where appropriate um, people who are responsible for, for all levels of um, crimes and violence at the Capitol. Um, but I think the second most important thing is a real accounting, a real examination in this country, whether it be by an independent commission um, or, you know, uh, various law enforcement agencies that have internal um, watchdogs that, that can do this kind of investigation to see what happened. I mean, we had a failed law enforcement response. Now, I say that cautiously because there were many heroes that day, yes. obviously. There were many law enforcement who, who did what they could that day. But overall, from a systemic point of view, if you look at it, it was a failed response. I mean, there's yes. no way you can look at what happened. They never should have been able to breach the Capitol. They certainly never should have been able to get inside the chamber. We never should have had it come this close to pe to more people losing their lives. Um, not not to mention the you know emotional trauma um, and potential political consequences that day. So I, I think that um, we really need to figure out what happened. Was it a matter of not being prepared? And if so, why weren't we prepared? Was it, were there people who gave some of the insurrectionists a pass because um, of, you know, certain beliefs or racism? I mean, there, there are all sorts of different possible explanations. I try not to jump to conclusions, but it was really hard to look at that day and not say, one, that there was a systemic failure, although again, there were many heroes, and two, that um, it sure looked like people were being treated differently because they were white, that they were allowed to walk in in some cases, you know, literally have a door open and then walk away. And, you know, why they weren't arrested after that, I think there was survival mode and people just you know, I don't know. I don't want to speak for, for what was going on, but it, it, we, it is the FBI, I think, is doing a remarkable job of moving this investigation very fast, very efficiently. But as you say, we're starting from a very different point than if people had actually been arrested that day. Absolutely. Or if they get arrested and are allowed to go to Mexico. Hmm. <laughs> and not, not just on vacation, but leave the country where you could disappear uh, quite easily. Um, you talk in your piece, uh, when I mentioned before, get creative to fight hate crimes. One of the things that you say, um, and uh, I was aware of this, but I'm not sure everybody listening and viewing today is and the why, that hate crimes often go unreported, um, you know, underreported. Could you, can you explain why that is? Yeah, I mean, first of all, if you think about it, um, a large part of the people against whom bias incidents and hate crimes happen are people who aren't necessarily going to feel comfortable coming forward to law enforcement. You know, it could be people who 
um, don't, are immigrants, people who don't have legal status, people who don't trust law enforcement to begin with, people who think they're not going to get a real response or be taken seriously. Um, it can be fear that, that if you call attention to yourself, you're just going to get targeted with more hate. So there's a lot of different reasons why people, they feel, you know, unlike with other areas of crime, um, I think people tend sometimes, not rightfully, but they do feel a sense of shame or embarrassment, and they would rather just kind of bury it and, and you know, walk away from it. Um, and, you know, I obviously would encourage people to not do that, but to come forward. And that, that's part of what we've been doing, talking about this so much openly in the county, not just me, but the police chiefs, law enforcement that we work with. Um, to say, no, we, we want to hear from you. We're, we're talking about setting up a hotline here in our office that will more, make it even more easy for people to report. Um, the Human Rights Commission that I mentioned before, they have an online form where people can submit um, incidents. You know, so we're, we're trying to make it easier for people to come forward. Um, obviously, they can report directly to the police and um, it, you know, wherever you live. And, and I think it's, it's, if nothing else, it's important to document these because it, it is never, it, it may not just be about that one incident and you won't know that unless it's reported somewhere and we can kind of get a bigger picture from, uh, you know, across our county and, and different communities. You had also mentioned your piece that uh, local, and we have less than a minute, but you, you talked about local prosecutors like you have a unique responsibility to prosecute hate crimes. Uh, very quickly in less than a minute, um, you know, uh, do more crimes need to be uh, defined as hate uh, crimes? And uh, are we not prosecuting enough of those hate crimes? Well, I mean, I think everyone, all law enforcement and lawmakers should take a good look at their legislation and their statutes and make sure that they are adequate. I mean, this is a time for reexamination. So it's hard to speak, you know, about that across the country. There's a lot of debate about whether we should have a domestic terrorism law, um, which is, es you know, escalating from, from what we're talking about. But I, I think that's something that we do need to have. Um, but I understand that there is definitely good arguments on both sides um, about that issue. But I think it's a time for reexamining and looking at those statutes. And I would hope that everyone's doing that in their communities. Well, I, I love that. One of your goals as DA uh, for Westchester County is to uh, work every day to ensure all communities are safe. Uh, knowing your background, even though I don't live in Westchester, I live in L.A., um, I know that will be the case. And it's really nice to know that the people of Westchester County um, have you in their best interest uh, at your uh, at your heart. You're very passionate about it. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, that's the DA, Mimi Roca from Westchester County. Like I said, on Twitter, you can follow her DA account at Westchester DA. And personally, hers is at Mimiroka, M-I-M-I-R-O-C-A-H. One I follower, you really should. She's got a lot of interesting stuff. Thank you once again, DA I'm Leslie Marshall. Shout out to Marky Mark Maldi, your executive producer. Same bat time, same bat channel. Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't, because you're better with money than that.
That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. Products not available in every state. Call 1-888-FARMERS to switch and you could save an average of $470 on your auto insurance. That's a lot of money in just a few minutes. With savings like that, you could be lounging on an impractical amount of ornate and overpriced throw pillows you bought for your couch. But you won't because you're better with money than that. That's why you're calling us in the first place. Call 1-888-FARMERS to get a quote today. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Based on average nationwide annual savings survey data, July to December 2020. Underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. Products not available in every state.